Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, the show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm Dr. Shabnam Berry Khan. And I am talking today about a hot topic for any clinician, but um, I think an important topic and a complex one in personal injury for lots and lots of reasons. I've noticed that it's an area that in my, I think my practice and lots of other people that I've come across in in their practice that needs a lot of headspace, lots of personal resource um, and a lot of knowledge in order to, to be able to navigate our way through what safeguarding brings up for us and keeping our clients safe means. So it was suggested that maybe it'd be a good idea to hold, uh, you know, have a a podcast episode on it. So I guess here we are talking about safeguarding. So today we have Linda Sayers, owner of Sayers Social Care Consultancy, talking to us about safeguarding in the personal injury world. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Shabnam. Thank you for asking me to come and talk to you this morning. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. It's, um, it's such an important topic, safeguarding, thinking about the welfare of our clients, particularly in a sort of the private sector, if you like. And there are lots and lots of people that um, are involved with our clients. And I think um, unless there's a clear framework around them, people can still slip through the net. So I'm really curious about your thoughts around that. But as always, before I get into the nitty gritty of the topic, I'm always curious about um, our guests, um, you know, kind of their background and um, why why the topic that they're, you know, passionate about and talking to us today about. So can I hand the mic over to you and you just tell us a little bit about who is Linda Sayers and why safeguarding? Thank you, Shabnam. Yes, I sometimes ask myself, why safeguarding? So, <laughs> I am proud to say that I'm a registered social worker. Mm -hmm. I've been a qualified social worker, and I'm quite horrified when I say this, for over 35 years. I qualified very early, is what I add to that comment. I did the traditional role of a social worker uh, for the first 15 years of my career, working in safeguarding, both with children and adults, predominantly in hospital settings. And then I kind of climbed up the ranks of social work, started working in managerial posts in inner cities. And still safeguarding was something that was key to the role that I did. I, like many social workers who work in local authorities, really realised that you had to do a little bit more self-care than maybe Mm -hmm. I had been doing. And... I got into training and I got into uh, a little bit of university lecturing and working both with social work colleagues and working with other practitioners. Set up my own business, which wasn't, say, a social care consultancy, but started working with people outside then of statutory services, outside of statutory social work, and started working with people in the private sector. Mm. And I tripped over the world of case management. I I do have a family connection with case management. So I tripped over into the world of case management, started doing a little bit of work with several case management companies nationally, and 
all I can say is I got sucked into the fascinating <laughs> world of personal injury litigation and case management and brain injury rehabilitation. Yes, you and many others say the same thing, sucked in, tripped over. These are, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I spent 17 years working in a case management company and loved most minutes. I'm not going to say every <laughs> minute, but loved an awful amount of it. I have done some case management. I had my own cases, always a couple, just to make sure that I understood mm. the processes. But one of my other huge areas of work within the case management sector was about quality, about governance, about training and safeguarding. So I kind of brought that whole world of having worked in frontline safeguarding into the private sector and into personal injury litigation. About eight months ago, I decided to semi-retire. Someone told me that semi-retirement was a bit like pregnancy, and I thought that's a bit <laughs> And someone said to me, well, the answer is, Linda, you can't semi-retire. You either work or you don't work. It's a bit like being pregnant. And I keep on remembering who said that to me and remind him of that every so often. But I thought about what can I, and I suppose some of it, Shabnam, and it sounds a little philanthropic, but I'm, it, that's not why I do it. Um, I do it to top up my pension. But I thought, what is my key skill? What can I give back to the sector that I have loved working in? And mm. so I thought to hone a small business, semi-retirement business, really trying to carry on my training and consultancy and my, my desire to ensure that our clients their well-being is protected, that they are safeguarded, and to ensure that people in our sector could get good quality, bespoke training from someone who understood both the dilemmas of working in the private sector, but had a lot of statutory agency experience. So I still mm. do the work with case managers. I'm still doing some work training social workers in safeguarding and some, some issues in safeguarding. So actually now I have feet half a foot in both doors but I do stress to people you know what I'm semi-retired I have a work-life balance as well yeah now oh, that's amazing that's a really um a nice sort of summary of, of a journey towards something that I guess you're passionate about and um and that you kind of want you know you you have uh the the choice of being able to still do in a in a, in a non full time capacity for the benefit of you and obviously for our clients, which is amazing because I think for me safeguarding is I find it quite complicated because it's a movable thing because it's it's a it's very times time applicable so kind of what safeguarding is today in the modern era is probably very well not probably it's very different to what it was like when I was say growing up and also as someone working in the private sector the multi-agency elements where you are in the private sector but you're working with the statutory services I think can be a challenge because you're kind of outside of a system that you're trying to get to understand what's going on and so I, I see um, the work that you do being really relevant to that is that fair to say? That's absolutely right I think I, I will pick up two things that you said there one is mm. it's changing and mm. secondly being out in the private sector. So mm. if we look at training and how, and how safeguarding is changing, I was reflecting with a group of 
statutory social workers or local authority social workers who all had safeguarding as a great part of their job description only in a training course yesterday. And I was saying to them, wasn't safeguarding easy five, ten years ago? Mm. Both in adults and children, we looked at, we had our categories, we talked about sexual abuse, we talked about neglect, we talked about emotional abuse. And we thought we thought we were protecting adults at risk and children from intrafamilial, uh, familial abuse, caregiver abuse, and institutional abuse. And that's mm. where we focused. And what I was saying to these social workers and the whole specific nature of the course I was doing was about this new term that was coined within the last four or five years of contextual safeguarding. So actually, not only do we have to protect children and adults at risk from their caregivers, but we also have to think about growing up and being an adult at risk in a context of 2022. Mm. All the things that we hear about on the news and the press, you know, county lines, um, you know, the use of vulnerable people, be they children or adults, to get involved in county lines and run drugs, modern slavery, I could go on, but also all this potential medium for abuse of people through social media through the internet. Fabulous social media and the internet. What would we do without it? But also the harm that that can cause. So I suppose that's keeping abreast of all of that is very Mm -hmm. complex for those who it's their bread and butter. They work in statutory services. But for those who work in case management, be it as a case manager, be it as a, a rehab professional, be it as a litigation solicitor, be it as a deputy, we have to remember that we're doing it. And you see, I slip into it, we, because I am in it, Mm. that we are doing it outside of the statutory framework. And when you read, for example, the CARE Act, which really gives us the guidance for um, for, for working with adults at risk, or when we talk about working together to safeguard children, which is the statutory guidance for protecting children, their whole emphasis on whilst the vibe going through all of those documents is safeguarding is everybody's business, Mm. they are really focusing what statutory agencies, and, you know, what I'm meaning by statutory agencies is social care, health, police, education, probation, the prison service, the the fire service should be doing. And then they say, you must work in partnership with the other, the third sectors or the charitable sector. And I think that the working in partnership, and I would say this to a group of social workers if they were sitting here now in front of me on the screen or face to face, the working in partnership with other statutory agencies is hard enough for social workers. Mm. Very, very difficult when it comes to working with people in the private sector. Because as someone said to me when I was working in the private, when I was working in case management a year ago, what do you know you work in the private sector? 
And I had to do a very big swallow to that local authority social worker. I didn't give him the letters after my name, but I said, look, I've worked in the statutory sector too. And I then actually going forward, communicating with that particular social worker, I put all my qualifications after my name, which is something, Shabnam, that I very rarely do. Mm-hmm. But what I, I needed to say to him that I did know, I worked in the private sector. And that's the huge challenge because many people who work in our personal injury litigation world have not got feet in both camps. And if it's hard yeah. for me, who's got feet in both camps, I know it's hard for the people probably who are listening to this podcast. Yep. Yep. And I think that's that's certainly my experience and those of the peers that I do talk to. And, you know, it almost feels like a them and us, but actually we're meant to be, like you say, working in partnership for the, you know, uh, the best interests of the clients, et cetera. We all know that theoretically, but it's, it is really, really tough. Do you have any tips for us on that, by the way? I know we, we talk about tips later on. but Yes. I think one of my tips for people is, is for those working in the sector is ask yourself, look within yourself and say, is my training, is my own knowledge up to date? You know, am I trained to the appropriate level? And I, you know, I do offer training. That is one of the things I do. I do offer consultancy. But I also say to people, within the case management world, I see a lot of training on all sorts of weird and wonderful pieces of equipment. I'm a great follower of LinkedIn. That's how you and I met, Shatnam, isn't Mm, it, via LinkedIn? And I see huge amounts of material on the latest gadget. And that latest gadget is going to be empowering to people. But what I also want to say to people, there are latest gadgets in safeguarding. There is new legislation. There are new pieces of government guidance. There are new themes. For example, I've talked about contextual safeguarding. And I suppose I want to, if the tip for me is, reflect back to yourself. Are you up to date? Do you know what's going on? So a little bit of plug for myself, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this, you know, follow me on LinkedIn. I do the reading for you. And I will raise for my community on LinkedIn things that I think they need to know about. Yeah. So, you know, because uh, that's really, really important. So the tips are keeping yourself up to date. When you have to keep yourself up to date, think of safeguarding a bit like equipment and gadgets if you're an OT. You want to know what the latest gadget is out there, who applies it, who can supply it, how much it costs. We need to think about that with safeguarding and just knowing who to who you go to for your counsel. You know, people will often say to me, oh, I have regular supervision and we all should have regular supervision. I have regular supervision. My regular supervision is walking around or dog walking with a, a, a peer who is a trainer and consultant in safeguarding. And we do peer supervision as we walk around the block. But I also say, know who you go to for your safeguarding advice so that you keep your own reflective practice up to date. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. I guess that, that links into a lot of our audience being case managers and, and having to think about CQC, of course. And I didn't think I'd bring up the C word but, um, or the C acronym, but I have. You know, do you have any thoughts on you know, how to, to, to be able to meet that safe key line of inquiry through the safeguarding structures that case managers need to have in place? 
have lots of thoughts. Um, <laughs> One or two. <laughs> that's an opening line. I know. <laughs> I always say to people that absolutely everything we do in case management should be safe. And actually, when people go, I haven't got any evidence for safe because I haven't got, I haven't shown, you know, I, I have never made a safeguarding referral or we haven't had a situation here at XXX case management. And I go, well, that's great. But you have a lot of evidence, documentation and practice to show that you're working in a safe way because safe practice, safeguarding needs to sit within good case management, good care plans, good structure, working towards outcomes, ensuring that you're your multidisciplinary team working with your client when you engage them, are you engaging them in a safe way? Mm. Have you checked out that they're registered professionals? Have you done your due diligence? So when I'm talking safeguarding, I'm saying it a bit like if you cut me through the middle, I'm like a stick of rock. It probably says safeguarding through my middle. I would say as case managers, through our practice, safeguarding and safe work needs to be central to what we do. Yeah. If you look at the definition of safeguarding in working together to safeguard children, one of the things I often raise to the awareness of people who work with children in case management is the definition in working together to safeguard children, which is the key statutory guidance, came in in 2018. The fourth, please don't ask me what the other three are, but the fourth always stands out to me for case manager. Working to ensure the best outcomes for a child. So that's safeguarding as defined by the statutory agency. So isn't that what a case manager does? Indeed. And so, you know, when I, I see that definition of safeguarding in that statutory guidance, I often say to case managers, that's why it's central to what you do. You asked about the CQC, but it mm. is. It's what the CQC will look for. And, and I have been a registered manager. Uh, I was mm. a registered manager for nine years when I worked in case management. That's what they want to see. They don't want to see it as an add-on. They want to see it central as all the work that you do. Mm. So think of it as everything you do as a case manager or a, or a rehab professional is about yeah. ensuring the best outcomes of your client. Yeah. And what you were saying earlier about sort of record keeping, I know we had a podcast episode with Chantal Brooks, who basically said, if you don't record it, it never existed in terms of being able to, 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 to be evidence. But you're evidencing not just the gaps and the, the near misses, et cetera, but you're also evidencing the good practice, the stuff that we might maybe take for granted or may not even recognise as being safe, perhaps. Understanding the definition of safe and understanding what that actually looks like as we do our practice um, is really important. And, and so, um, and I can see, you know, in my own, practice how it permeates how it, it, it can and does permeate and how we need to capture all of that in good notes absolutely Shabnam I think what what we do is 
And I, I always have to kind of I remind myself of those early days when I came into case management, you know, and as I say, it was sort of like 2000, about 2004. And I went into a company that was great, fabulous. They did fabulous work, highly skilled mm. professional. And I suppose I came with a, a curious mindset and the company had just registered with the CQC and I knew that the CQC were going to ask for evidence. And I can remember saying to a case manager, so Where's your, uh, for an example, and, and tipping over slightly into Chantel, but this was about uh, medication. And I said, we've got a 24-7 package with this client. We're looking after him or supporting him in his daily life 24 hours of the day. Find anything in your documentation about medication. And the case manager looked me in the face. We're very good friends now with this case manager. And she said, well, he doesn't need any assistance. He does it himself. And I went, that's fabulous. I'd never kind of come across, I'd never really thought about a client who had 24-7 care and could do it all himself. And I said, that's fabulous. I love that. But where's the evidence to say that he can do it all himself? And she looked at me and she went, well, that's obvious. And I went, no, it's not. It's obvious to you. It's obvious to the team. But it's not obvious to me. That's why I've asked. And so, you know, it was almost like having documents, screening documents that helped you on this safeguarding journey to say, actually, we've, we've worked with, we'll call him Fred. We've worked with Fred. We've screened his medication, his ability to understand medication. We've screened his mental capacity. We screened his manual handling needs. He can do it all himself. And so that document becomes what keeps him safe rather than the assumption that we all know Fred he can do it. I suppose I then questioned, why did Fred need 24-7 care? But of course, at that point in time, Shabnam, I have to admit, I didn't really understand about executive capacity. So mm. that was a huge learning curve for me over the next 17 years, that you could do all these things for yourself, but you still needed an awful lot of support. Yeah. It's a, yeah, well, it's a ongoing learning process, I guess, isn't it? You can't know everything at any one point, but I mean, yeah. what that, that raises with me is how unclear either through, you know, safeguarding can be, it's not clear cut, is it? It's partly perspective. It's partly about all of those practices that we should have in place, um, but may or may not. So it's kind of lots of piecing together um, bits of information that is available, trying to make it make sense. Um, and sometimes it's quite uh, ultimately quite nebulous, particularly when there are those less clear maybe examples. So I don't know, like coercion and control or professional teams being sort of abusive towards a client, but that's, you know, not going to necessarily be recorded in the, in the care notes, is it? Or, um, yeah, and I'm just, I'm curious about, and, and the impact, and then how the impact of trying to make that make sense as, uh, as safeguarding is everyone's responsibility. So me as a case manager or a psychologist trying to make sense of a situation that doesn't seem safe, doesn't seem right. But then the impact that also has on me as maybe the only person who sees it this way um maybe there's um you know a concern that it's uh you know in the process of uh, a personal injury claim it'd be really unhelpful to raise this right now because you know there's pressure from the legal teams i'm not saying you know i'm not saying that these are 
pressures that you should succumb to, but they are part and parcel of doing the work that we do. Being fired, that's a big concern for lots of people in the private sector. But these are all things that we have to sort of make sense of in our minds all the while trying to piece together something. It's very time consuming. You might be very alone with it. And and the issue itself might not be very clear anyway. Ah, (laughs) where where does one start with that sort of backdrop? So many, so many things you posed there, Shout out. Yeah, that I thought, all oh, right, I'll come in there. I'll come in there. I'll come <laughs> Sorry. in there. So it's all right. I, I wrote my, I wrote a few of the, the, the phrases you used out. I often, and, and I, I draw on the training material that I build up with people. And I always start with actually helping people understand that we are in a nebulous area, mm. that there's no clear cut that actually we all have, we all bring to our work, our values, our experience, our judgment, whether we're risk averse, whether we're busy, whether we like this situation. And, and yeah. that one thing I say to people when I'm working with them or I'm consulting with them, or if I'm training them is one must understand one's own knowledge and one's own value base. And I know we say that as professionals. Oh, yeah, of course I do. But it it changes over time. You know, I've had, I've picked up telephone calls where someone's given me a little bit of information. And I can, even with my years of experience, not expertise, but experience, I know that I might react one way one day and might react one way another day because of what's going on on my desk that day. So being aware of that is really important. But it's also, we often get, you said about nebulous, what do I do with that little piece of information? And again, one of the things that I've kind of, you get, you do get older and you do get whiter. I, I really now see safeguarding as a bit like a jigsaw puzzle that I get given, and I, it doesn't matter whether you work in statutory services or you're working in case management, but I think we often have a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And I have an elderly relative who was a great jigsaw puzzle doer. And we all know that the hardest bits of the jigsaw are the sea and the sky because they all look the same. And when I used to walk in to see her, she used to hand me the blue sky or sea and say, what do I do with that? And I used to go, I don't know what you do with that. It either goes here or there. And she said, that's not very helpful. And I suppose what we need to educate ourselves and I need to train people and educate people in the work I'm doing is to say, knowing what you do with that piece of the puzzle. Do I take that piece of the puzzle that somehow is itching me or a gut or not feeling quite right? What do I do with it? Do I take it to my wise counsel, who is the person I've identified that I share puzzles with? Do I bring it to the MDT to see whether it fits with other pieces of the puzzle, because maybe somebody else in the MDT has another bit of that jigsaw? 
Or is this piece of the puzzle so significant that I have to take it straight to statutory services? And I think that is a huge skill. And, you know, I talk with people, as again, who work, have both feet, one foot in either side of this divide between statutory and private. Mm. And I say, what we need to do is know what to do with that bit, that piece. And often when we share that piece with somebody else, we get a clearer picture and we start to build a picture. Um, The technical term in social work jargon is we start to triangulate we start to share, in an, we bring something to an MDT and we say, I have a little bit of a gut feeling about this and I'm bringing it to you. And I'm bringing it to you as information I want to share with my very experienced MDT. And then someone else goes, do you know what, Linda, it's funny you say that, but when I went two weeks ago, I had a feeling about this not being quite right. And you know, what you then get is what, I would call the kind of bystander effect. You're the psychologist, uh, Shabnam, I'm not, but I would say it's that people start contributing because somebody else has put their head again above the parapet. Mm. And so does that see how we need to really build in the private sector our knowledge? And then, you know, with two or three pieces from the MDT, we then need to say, right, how are we going to take this further? And that's when you think, with that information, I'm going to share it on with statutory services. Or we maybe look at it and go, we hold it. We become a little bit more professionally curious. We find out a little bit more information. We build a slightly bigger picture. Then we share it with statutory services. We constantly have to be doing that regulation with ourselves about what do we know? What do we share? Sometimes share with statutory services. And we get the response of, I've got to phrase this nicely because I sometimes phrase it inappropriately. Well, what do you think we're going to do about it? Yeah. And I often say to people in statutory services, okay, fine. But I've shared it with you. I'm working in partnership with you. I'm following my professional, because of course we're all professionally regulated, aren't we? You know, most people working in our sector have their professional registrations. I'm doing my duty as a case manager. I'm doing my duty as an OT. I'm sharing it with you. And when I get balked at by someone in statutory services, I say, but hang on a minute, I don't know what you know. So I'm giving you my piece of the jigsaw. Mm. We're working in partnership. And I, I will often, you know, get a bit stroppy sometimes, but I'll often point out that, you know, I am a partner agency in safeguarding. Their duty is to work in partnership with me because in all the acts that protect children and and adults at risk, it's about partnerships. I say, I'm sharing this with you because I don't know what else you know. Does that kind of help guide, Shabnam? It does. It's really, um, it's really, it reminds me of um, uh, what we would, in psychology land, would say theory of mind, the idea of being able to see something from someone else's perspective in in that they don't know what you know so and you can't take it's not worth taking that risk, actually, to assume that they know what you know and um, being able to, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, that blue sky or that sea jigsaw piece becomes 
it becomes easier and more clear where that piece then goes because everyone else is bringing their blue bits or their yeah. green bits that represent the sea or the, or the sky or whatever, respectively. And I akin it to the jigsaw. I akin it to the jigsaw because I sometimes say to people, you get a corner piece. And a corner mm. piece, we know when we're doing jigsaws, is a bit like striking gold, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And when you get your corner piece, that's when you go, there's no doubt we need to take this to somebody straight away. Yeah. Or an edge piece. Actually, this is raising my awareness and I need to think, maybe I need to take the edge bit. This is fundamental to my jigsaw puzzle. But actually, it's often the blues, the nebulous bits of the blue sky and sea. Um, you're going to take that away and think about it, aren't you, Shabnam? But I, I often challenge people in their train in the training I do with them is think, what am I doing with this piece of the jigsaw? Uh, and I need to build it if it's sky. I need to look around and see what other sky I've got, what other sea I've got. My goodness me, if it's a corner piece, and sometimes they come into us as a corner piece. Um, and I, you know, an example that I can think of, it sits in my brain very, very much to the top of my brain in case management was in a 24-7 support team with a client who had very complex care needs. I got a phone call one day. It was a slightly inconvenient phone call because I was in the middle of a CQC inspection. But luckily, the admin member of staff waved at me and said, you've got to take this. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm in the middle of a CQC inspection. And I, I came on the call to a support worker who I had just done safeguarding training with within the last 72 hours. She was so new. That's how, how new she was. Mm -hmm. And she said, Linda, you told me that if I ever needed to report a safeguarding situation, I could go to anyone in the organisation. And I know you, so I've come to you. I thought, yeah, that's fine. You followed the instructions. Great. She said, last night, I witnessed the team leader slap the client. Oh, wow. That to me was a corner piece. And however busy I was that day with the CQC inspector sitting in the room next door, I had to make sure that we started the process with the local authority. And I walked back into the CQC inspector because I thought this is a nightmare of what happened in a CQC inspection. And I walked mm. back in and I said, hello, Claire. Sorry, sorry that I went out, but I sensed it was something emergency. And I told her what I'd just done. And she said, Linda, do you mind if I shadow you for the rest of, for a little while? And I went, no. I thought, my goodness me, I've got to get this right. But after about an hour, I had given the situation to another person. We contacted the local authority, we'd contacted the local authority designated officer, we'd contacted the deputy, who was the employer of the team leader, we'd started the process, we contacted the police, we'd started the safeguarding process rolling. And after about an hour and a half, and a couple of very strong black coffees, I said to the CQC inspector, I feel I can leave this with the team that I work with, and come back into the inspection. And I sat down in there and she said, you know, I've seen enough for today. And I thought to myself, oh, goodness me, did we get it right? Mm -hmm. But that was our first outstanding inspection. So, you know, actually that, you know, don't be worried if the CQC inspector is there and you have to demonstrate live that you understand safeguarding. <laughs> you have to do it. 
So, you know, it's a very graphic example, but I learned a lot that day about you have you have to train your admin team to know when something can't wait. Yeah. And that, you know, to me, I I I, I always have that image of that admin worker coming coming and knocking on the door, opening it and saying, I'm very sorry, but she apologised to me afterwards. I said, no, actually, it showed you we had trained you in safeguarding in the same way as everybody else. So, again, people mm-hmm. say to me, who do we need to train in safeguarding? And I say, actually, the person who answers the phone as well as the director of the company. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in the same course. They don't need the same knowledge, but they all everybody's business, so we do need to train people. Oh. It's so important. They're the gatekeepers of that conversation in a way, you know, Ooh. like that's then they're the ones who are going to say, oh, no, don't call back in 10 minutes. Or, you know, if it's some, if it's something that really can't wait that yeah. length of time, if they don't know that. <laughs> no, it's a bit like in a residential care home. Somebody asked me recently, knew what I did and our local um, nursing home. I know the nursing home manager there quite well. And she said to me, Linda, would you come in and do safeguarding training for us, for our care staff? And I went, yep. And I said to her, you know, we, we identified it. And I said, and what are we going to do about the cleaner? And she looked at me. I, I, the look on her face was wonderful. And she said, what about the cleaner? I said, is she going to join us? And she went, oh, why? And I said, you know, cleaners potter around in, 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 in your nursing home, in your residence rooms. Residents talk to them. They see things. They're mm. often going to see things that your staff aren't. It was lovely because actually I did two sessions in the nursing home and I had the cleaners, I had the cooks, I had the waitresses and I had the handyman. And they started by saying they were there because they were told to be there. <laughs> at the end, the handyman looked at me and I said, why were you here to everybody in the room? And he said, because I'm the eyes and ears of our residents. I said, that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's everybody's, that's where it comes down to safeguarding is everybody's business. Indeed, indeed. And I'm just coming back to the point that you made about sort of making sure that you're trained appropriately um, and to the right levels. As clinicians, there it feels like there's more of an emphasis on us to have that training compared to, say, um, more administrative, you could say, members of the wider personal injury communities. Um, So I'm thinking um, people who may not identify with being a clinician, but they are still heavily involved. So I'm thinking lawyers. Yeah. Will they have level three safeguarding, which, you know, or equivalent or or beyond? I'm I'm not sure. And I'm just curious as to whether you know the answer to that. This this is a big debate. This is this Mm. is this is an interesting debate that I stepped into when I stepped out of case management. And I have reflected in my employed case management career. Oh, I wonder what this lawyer knows about safeguarding. Mm. And so when I stepped out, I was approached by two legal firms to talk about what I felt their staff needed to know. They're, they're lawyers, deputies, litigation mm. solicitors. Mm. And one particularly has engaged with me very well. I will keep that firm nameless. And actually, they're cut, they're, they are sending their staff on my open level three courses. And it's fab to have them on board. I do have to be careful that I don't say, and of course the deputy says, 
don't diddle with this this week because it's not convenient. Um, so, I, you know, I'm mindful of what I say, but, you know, we it is everybody's business. I chatted with a solicitor recently and I said, who, who, who wanted me to, to think about doing some bespoke training for them. And I said, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed when I read the Solicitors Regulation Agency uh, Authority guidelines for what you guys have to do and be. It says that you have to keep your clients safe. I would love it to say you have to keep your clients safe and you have to have this level of knowledge yourself. Mm. And that person said to me, who will be known by quite a lot of people listening to this podcast, so I'm not going to name him. (laughs) The trouble is, if you tell solicitors to do things, they don't do it. He said, you have to basically want them to embrace this. And he said to me, the conversation with you has made me embrace it. And I went, yeah, how do we have the conversation with all the other people who don't? I know, to? exactly. One down. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things to, that we have to constantly keep on our agendas. And, you know, I, I will say that, you know, I've had to in my career remind solicitors and legal executives and deputies. I know they're, they're sometimes solicitors, but, you know, that kind of whole, what we'll call the, the legal aspect of, of our personal injury work, that telling me that I can't or it's a little bit inconvenient at this time in the state of the claim to go to the statutory services, I have to say to them, I have a duty as a case manager, as a professional social worker, My duty as part of my registration is to do this. My duty as being a CQC registered agency is part of doing this. And then I do a little bit of my motivational interviewing. And surely your duty to your client, help me out, surely your duty to your client is keeping them safe. So I'm going to do it. And, you know, I've had some very hairy conversations, as you can imagine, Shabnam, over the year mm-hmm. by take, years by taking that approach. But I comfortably sit with them. Yeah. And when we, when we broadcast this um, podcast, there'll be somebody saying, yes, and she's very bolshy. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I am bolshy, but I, I also know that in this area, I'm right. I can't wait because it's inconvenient for the litigation. My priority, my duty is to the client, as is theirs. Yeah, and I I, I totally agree with you. And actually, I think uh, as someone who's had to deal with, you know, safeguarding queries and and discussions, um, it makes you bolshy, I find, either way, whether you're sitting on the side of, yes, this is something that needs to be taken forward, or actually we've investigated it. We need to take it, you know, we need to investigate it a bit more. Whichever, Whichever way you're coming at it, it requires you to to I think like you say sort of look within and find a what your training is b what your values are and um you know c you know ultimately keeping the client in the center of Mm. all of this Mm. and uh, and it does bring out the bolsh in you if that is indeed (laughs) a term um and I, I, I you know I've seen it in myself and I'm not you know a particularly bolshy person but I can be bullshit when it comes to this kind of thing so I can imagine as a trainer it's it's part and parcel of the you know part of the training probably that actually you you need to be a little bit sure you need to be sure of yourself and if that's therefore then bullshit then so be it be bullshit because 
too much is at too much is at stake here. So, and the ultimate risk that we get given, and, and I've heard this over the years. I have to say, I don't think I've heard it as much in the last two years of my case management practice because I think people have moved on. But there was always the threat of if you make this referral, our contract with you as case managers or rehab professionals will be terminated. And um, yes. that's the threat. And I go, well, that's very, very sad, but actually I'm still going to do it. And, you know, that's also yes. the threat. You know, when, we, when we're actually, when it's familial abuse or intrafamilial abuse, you know, that's actually, again, another threat. I'm not mm. going to, I'm not going to work with this, this, this case management company because they've engaged with so, social care about their concerns about our care of Fred. And what I will often say to families is, I, I'm doing this because actually, like you, I want the best for Fred. And I think we need to get the help and support of the statutory services to deal with this, what's going on in your family. Mm. And do you know, it's really interesting because actually if you've had an open, upfront relationship with these clients and their families, I think lots of these relationships can withstand us saying, I need to go outside of the private arena into the statutory sector and work with them. Mm. And, you know, sometimes you think, I'm going to make this phone call to the local authority or I'm going to fill in their online form. Don't get me started that online safeguarding forms. But I'm going to make contact with the local authority. And I, I do that. I try, if it's appropriate, to have talked through what I'm going to do with the significant people in that child or that adult's life, if it's safe to do so. Because yeah. then... I'm showing that I want to work in partnership with the local authority, but I'm also showing that I'm still working in partnership with power, in, in partnership with the family, the child, mm -hmm. the, the adult at risk. Because, you know, one of the terms that, you know, everyone in statutory services will use is about making safeguarding personal. That's, the, that's one of the buzz lines. It's been around for a couple of years, MSP making safeguarding personal. You can't empower people to be safeguarded if you're doing it behind, if you're making referrals behind their back. No, that's it. Psychologically, that is absolutely more damaging than the safeguarding <laughs> itself. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we used, to, we used to maybe train people incorrectly to say, oh, you must never do any exploration. It must go to the social worker straight away. And I think we've moved on now to think that safeguarding is, you know, we do have to empower people. And so what puts people off uh, when they make a referral to local authority or they're filling in one of those online forms, it says, have you discussed this with the client? Mm. And they say to me, well, I was trained not to. I say, yeah, you were trained 15 years ago not to. Mm. But you aren't necessarily trained with that now. Now, OK, if I thought... If I came across somebody who I thought had just been sexually abused within the last 25 minutes by a family member, of course I wouldn't discuss it with the family. Yeah. 
But, but, but there are some things you don't discuss, and that's a reason why you don't discuss, because there's evidence there that you don't want to contaminate. But a lot of the kind of nebulous situations that we're dealing with, they come as no surprise to a family. Mm. Mm. It's a cry for help often. So um, I'll shut up now, Shadna. <laughs> No, it's, it's been really, really interesting. I um, wonder if what we can do is, I suppose, start to bring to bring to a, sort of a summary, the, you know, the kind of discussions that we've had. And um, I guess one thing I, I would like to sort of share is how safeguarding really does challenge the personal, you know, that the, the you, pers- anyone personally, um, and how you need to bring a lot of yourself into a safeguarding discussion dilemma yeah report whatever you want to you know whatever stage of it is it starts with how you can reflect your practice I suppose in the actions that you take and what that says about you what that says about your response sense of responsibility so on and so forth you know how you set yourself up in the um in your work life in terms of are you too busy to take this on for example, uh, as a, as a, if, if it does blow up into something that requires much more attention and much more input, that sort of idea of being a reflective practitioner and a mindful practitioner really comes into its own um, from what you've said, um, because you don't, you want to have the space in your diary that A, allows you to handle emotionally and practically the, uh, the impact of talking about the S word safeguarding and how important it is then to have the right setup around you as a practitioner, the good, yeah. uh, you know, other than training and, and, or, but also the good supervision that, 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 um, I think you called it your, your counsel, your wise counsel. Yeah. Your, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Your wise counsel. Exactly. Um, your supervision who that also kind of allows you to think about the impact it's having on you as well, because it's, it's a, deeply something about making safeguarding personal feels like it's also it, it it's for the clients and, and the, the the people we serve but it's also about ourselves and how personal it is for us as well absolutely and um one of the things that i have always felt that it's very important in the work i do and, and actually even more so now is you know everybody needs their wise counsel mm-hmm. and um when when I'm talking to people at a level three level, and actually, you know, I, level one, level two, level three, level four, and those people go, where do these definitions come from, Linda? And I go, I use the intercollegiate document and the Bournemouth framework um, that are both, if you Google both of them, you see kind of where they level out of different training. So we're talking about case management as having level three because they're independent autonomous practitioners that's why I sit them in level three I sit support workers in level two but I also believe that every business well I also believe I also know because the the frameworks tell me that every business will need somebody in their organization designated as a level four in other words the designated the safeguarding lead the person probably in the company who doesn't do it all but actually they have an overview of it all. I often say to people, you know, if you have somebody who has an overview of health and safety, where's your overview of safeguarding? And they look at me and I go, it is everybody's business, but someone has got to lead, be the 
champion of it in the company. And mm. in fact, CQC, oh, we've said it again, we've used that word again, Shabnam, <laughs> will be actually asking, who is your safeguarding lead? It mm. might be you have three or four. It might be that you have a group of safeguarding leads. And what those safeguarding leads can do is offer additional support to people in the company. And mm. so I often say to people, yes, we get our clinical supervision from our line manager, from a senior clinician in the company. But actually, I might sometimes say, you need to go for your safeguarding supervision that either sits within your supervision and has a separate section within your supervision, or it might be you ask your designated lead to do it. Um, mm. Because it's different from how I, I think we do need to pull it slightly apart from clinical supervision it's a mm. slightly different area and it is about you know safeguarding is is safeguarding ourselves as well yeah and then that's where i say you know if you're a designated lead and you've done level four training where do you get your support and so when i was um you know i i'm running my first level four course for my own company in june and i said as part of that package i will offer that group of people coming to that training peer group safeguarding supervision going mm. forwards for a period so come and have a training course but it doesn't end at the four five thir- four o'clock on the end of the second day mm. we will carry on meeting three monthly as part of that course so that we carry on talking about issues and we care for we carry on caring for the leads. And as I say, I've then got my wise counsel that I peer supervise somebody else in the network. I did that very early on when I knew I was um, taking on independent work. I quickly identified somebody. I asked her. She looked at me and she, she looked at me. We were face to face. We probably broke social distancing rules. She gave me a hug and she said, that's a blessing. I want mm. someone to do it for me too. So we'll do it as a peer. And so it's a mutually, it's a mutually convenient. We both said, if it doesn't work, we'll go elsewhere. But at the moment it's working well. And it involves a, at least two monthly walk around, walk around a wonderful nature reserve with our dogs and someone who I can chat with mm. online. So it's about looking after ourselves. Oh, 100%, 100%. It does, yeah. I, I, I completely agree. It, yeah, really, really helpful to to hear that that safeguarding really starts with the being you know the starts with all of us and is everyone's issue. But then we're coming from a you know we're creating that strong foundation in order to be able to handle what it might what might emerge from it. Mm. I'm wondering if you are able to think about everything that we've just talked about and put it all into three helpful summary points, learning points, if you will, or take home things that you that, that would be helpful for, for our audience, mostly case managers, possibly therapists as well. I like to think some solicitors are listening in, but um, what do you think your three take-home points would be? Well, you know, as number one, Shabnam, I will push, ask yourself, is my training that I've had, is it up to date, bearing in mind that this safeguarding 
field is moving so quickly? Am I up to date with all the, the moving world of safeguarding? And is it relevant to the role that I'm doing? So that's my probably number one. Mm-hmm. And my number two is, I think key to this is, is having robust systems in place. So, you know, I know that paperwork is not the bit that most case managers and most independent professionals really, really enjoy, but it is necessary. Is it up to date? Does it fit for the scenario that I've got? Almost, you need to think, I've got a safeguarding policy. I tell, you know, I'm thinking particularly when we have clients supported in their own homes by um, directly recruited support teams, Does that safeguarding policy fit this client and the team? Giving them something very, very generic. You might need a generic company one, but we need one that's thought about in connection with this client and this Mm. team of individuals. Because if you have solid policies and processes, they don't eradicate abuse, but Mm. they give clear guidelines about what is acceptable and what is definitely not acceptable Mm. and then my last one I suppose my take home is it is personal and you know I've learned from you Shabnam in when you just said making safeguarding personal it means for us as professionals too yeah we've got to make sure that we have identified someone within our own network and I shout this out particularly to people who work in their back bedrooms as lone lone people Who do I go to? Where do I get my support? Because if we don't look after ourselves, how on earth can we hope to successfully support and care for and look after other people? That's a great, great point to end on. Linda, thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom um, and, and your, I guess, your what feels like quite a reflective conversation about safeguarding thank you for having me shabnam i'm disappointed that haven't t- you haven't got to tell you the 10 the seven records i'm taking on my desert island but oh I will yeah save that up for another another podcast indeed and i i will happily do that i yes <laughs> i really grateful for your time linda if people want to get hold of you i know you've mentioned linkedin can you tell us other ways that we can um get hold of you if we need to I don't have a website because I actually use LinkedIn as my kind of social media profile. And somebody gave me an advice that you put everything on LinkedIn. You then have a website. You have to put it on. But my email address is Linda E. Sayers 61 at gmail.com. But LinkedIn is a great place to find me. Just put Linda Sayers and I'm sure I'll come up if I don't come up for you. Uh, put Linda Sayers, Sayers Social Care Consultancy, and they will it will come up and take you to my LinkedIn. Um, And I love I I want to be able to um, update people with knowledge um, through LinkedIn, also through training. But yes, will give you the up to date, up to date knowledge. Yes, I've really valued your LinkedIn page, actually. So um, if you can't find Linda independently, just do it through my network for sure. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Linda. Safeguarding, I I think is it's a big topic, but I think you've got to start with understanding what it means to you and what the the I guess what the 
the law is around it and what the training uh what the, the current training and ideas are around it because it is constantly changing and um it's important to to be up to date on that uh, there's a whole load of questions i would have liked to have asked linda but hey ho such <laughs> is uh, such is is life we only had well we actually gave ourselves 40 minutes didn't we but we ended up talking for an hour but maybe there's a part two in there so watch this space Thank you for listening, everyone. And um, thank you once more to Linda Sayers of Sayers Social Care Consultancy. And catch you next time. Bye for now. Before you go, if you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support. 